Howdy folks, and welcome to Pushing Cardboard. I'm Grant Lindenberg, glad to have you back to talk about some more war games. Or, uh, if this is your first episode, welcome indeed. This is episode 12, The People's Choice. We'll be looking at two games as usual, one relatively newer, one a bit older. I polled the users of uh, PushingCardboard.com, uh, the website, and uh, these two games were the most popular in terms of the uh, the options I presented. So uh, the first one is a great choice, as I think it's the... I think maybe the next game coming out of C3i magazine is based on the same uh, the same engine as this one. It's uh, Trevor Bender's Battle for Kursk, The Tigers of Burning, 1943. I last played this uh, a year ago at the San Diego Online Histcon. We played live over Vassal and uh, and we had a great time with it. Uh, then the uh, the older game we'll be talking about is Hammer of the Scots. I haven't uh, haven't presented any of the games in uh, in that series yet, so. It's great to start with the game that, that started it all, really. I want to say thanks to those who dropped by the website and voted in the polls. Uh, I'll attempt to keep some new ones coming. And uh, please uh, drop by the forums, let me know what you think. Not, not just about the website, but uh, also about the podcast, the YouTube channel, whatever else is on your mind in Wargame Land. News and uh, what I've been playing. So, um, well, first up, news. Uh, this is the last episode before I head off to GMT's weekend at the warehouse. I've managed to connect with a few folks that'll be there. Uh, no promises, but um, I'll be taking my recording gear so I can try snag an interview or two while I'm there. Uh, if I run into any designers or what have you. And I'll uh, post them in future episodes. In the meantime, uh, drop by the website or Twitter. Let me know if you're going to be there. Maybe we can hook up for a game or something. In other news, uh, good news for those of you who missed out on Herman Lutman's A Most Fearful Slaughter from Flying Pig. It's, uh, it's been a much played and discussed game over the past month, and it's sold out immediately. But the word is they're going to launch another Kickstarter for a reprint very soon. So uh, that's good news for me in particular, as I think the Kickstarter ships to Canada, even if Flying Pig, uh, Flying Pig uh, regularly doesn't. Uh, so I, yeah, looking forward to getting my hands on that. Uh, I saw a few calls for backers for projects from Compass, but uh, nothing that made me open my wallet this this month. Uh, over at Revolution Games, they've they've still got a sale going on. It's two latest titles, Death of an Army and Warsaw 1920. Uh, I'm really enjoying uh, Death of an Army still, uh, so uh, I'd say uh, snap that up. The prices are reasonable even when they're not on sale, so, so this is a great offer. Legion Games has... Uh, Terrific looking new uh, game on World War One air combat coming up, but it's a solo game, so I'll be passing on that. Um, I'm still searching for the very best World War One air game. Uh, they also have an upcoming game on the Naval War on Lake Ontario, 1812, but again, that's solo, so no good for me. They're killing me here because those uh, couple of subjects have really interest me. Uh, I did submit a pre-order for La Primogenita, uh, Primogenita. Kim Kanger's next game. It's uh, it's on the East Africa campaign in 1941. It's a it's a topic he's done before with his game Road to Karen, uh, which I already have. But uh, I'm I'm still in the mode of pretty much buying anything else he designs. Uh, he's a top shelf designer, and 
well, and graphic designer as well. Game designer, graphic designer, all rolled into one. Um, if you haven't checked out their website recently, Legion has quite a few inviting looking titles in their pre-order queue. So uh, head over to the website, check it out. Uh, Worthington has a Kickstarter for Archie's War just finishing. It's a Guadalcanal game. It said it has both two-player and solo rules. Uh, I've been burned on that before, so I'm going to take a pass until I hear more about this one. VUCA from uh, Italy has a couple new games. The Chase of the Bismarck uses a double-blind system. And one of the co-designers is uh, naval design legend Jack Green. Uh, the other is P. Gebhardt, who designed Donnerschlag, the, a game that's seeing a, a lot of play at the moment, uh, in uh, my timeline anyway. The other new game is 1914 Nacht. Paris. It's uh, operational. World War One looks huge. Uh, yeah, it looks really huge. These uh, these Vuga games are fairly pricey coming all the way from Italy, but uh, having bought their first two games, I can certainly vouch that the component quality is is top notch. I look forward to uh, to playing the two that I have and uh, seeing if the game quality matches the component quality. Uh, finally, uh, the latest GMT update announced a few more things shipping. Uh, for me, the the mission pack for last hundred yards is the is the one thing that uh, that they've got shipping that's coming my way. But uh, more exciting, really, was their announcement of a new module for fighting formations. It's called uh, the 29th Infantry Division. I don't much like the trend of tactical games following certain units rather than whole nationalities, but I'll take it in this case uh, for many reasons. First, it's one of the last things we'll see from the much missed uh, Chad Jensen. Uh, second, it adds a new nationality to the game, the Americans. And then mostly, I, uh, I just really like the game engine, uh, so new content for it is is a bonus. Uh, GMT also hinted at a new coin game, a new Mark Herman game, and a new Down in Flames game. So uh, lots going on there as always. What's on the table? Okay, well, I think I'm going to dispense with the uh, the total rundown of everything I've been playing as uh, so much of it is the same thing month after month, and uh, you're probably tired of hearing about of a, a bunch of it, but uh, maybe I'll just uh, do a few highlights and uh, and what's new on the tables. Um, I shut down one of my uh, Commands and Colors Ancients streams in order to finally give more of a try to uh, Commands and Colors Medieval. I'd only played it once when it first came out. I wasn't much of a much of a fan of the card design or the artwork in this module. Didn't really click with me right away on that first play, so it, it sat on my shelf ever since. But I'm happy to come back to it and uh, give it a, a more full play with a, with a new opponent, and uh, hopefully I'll unlock what's, uh, what's, what's good about this game compared to the other Commands and Colors games. Still playing Absolute War, uh, the intro Barbarossa scenario. Uh, Wendell managed to take Moscow on turn four. I wasn't able to dislodge him on turn five, so uh, one turn to go. I'm getting more familiar with the system. Uh, there's lots to like with this game. It just takes a lot of getting used to, as it's unlike many other games on the same subject. We finished up uh, last 100 yards airborne playing Mission 14. I had him whittled down to just three units. Uh, I kept jumping into close combat with him, surrounding him so that he, when he lost the close combat, he, he'd have nowhere to go to. And then uh, I'd get a defender result on the melee, on the melee and uh, he'd end up having to take uh, uh, kind of like a double cohesion test for losing. Uh, one for losing, another one for retreating through my units. But he kept passing every one. So much so that he finally sort of escaped from all these these kind of donuts I had him in. 
And then he finally won the next initiative roll, so he's able to move away faster than I was able to chase him. Uh, time's out, and uh, he ends up winning because of that. <laughs> it, uh, it, it, was, it was a strange... I mean, it was a fun game in many ways. I, uh, I certainly don't mind losing, but it felt like a very gamey situation at the end. Um, no matter how overwhelming my numbers in melee, there's a max uh, DRM of plus four on the assault table, so he managed to escape and then pass all those cohesion tests. Well, I don't know. I guess uh, you can either find it gamey or else it's uh, it's one hell of a, a war story, right? Uh, certainly, uh, I imagine my uh, my opponent, Pete, will uh, remember it that way. Uh, another game, uh, we played uh, uh, we played Stonewall's Sword introductory scenario a bit ago. We liked it. So uh, then uh, my Blind Swords partner and I tried Thunder in the Ozarks intro scenario. We liked that. So we decided it was time to play a Fulvent-Link scenario. So we've gone back to Stonewall's Sword. Uh, things kind of got off on the wrong foot for my rebels as he got most of his uh, first turn activations before me and was able to rush onto a couple of the VP hexes on my lower left of the map. Uh, it's going to take a while to move him off as my division commander over there is crap with three is three is this activation number. So uh, so it's hard to get things moving and also the brigades over there aren't the strongest. So it's, I'm going to kind of have to wait for reinforcements to arrive to to be able to move them off those VP uh, uh, spots. Uh, finally, while I'm waiting for my new shelves, I, uh, I finally broke down, moved everything back off my table, out of my office, so I could get some gaming space back. And I broke out crossing the line from VUCA and played a, a dozen or so activations of that, of the uh, introductory scenario. Very interesting system. Beautiful components. It's, uh, yeah, I don't think I've seen a... Um, a combat system quite like this, and nor a, it's nor an activation system quite like this. It's uh, it's going to be really interesting. I think you know just from first look. The only thing I didn't enjoy is there's uh, they have markers for step losses. So once the battle gets going, I think pretty much every unit that's involved is going to have some kind of an ugly step loss uh, marker underneath it. Going to make for some ugly stacks once things get going. Uh, and finally, I, I should also say I um, I started a couple of couple new games of Death of an Army, which I've uh, detailed. Uh, I've talked about the game quite a bit on uh, on the podcast and on YouTube. But uh, I got a couple. Finally, getting a couple of good opposed plays in one via Vassal Live that we uh, we had our first session of the other night and uh, went really really smoothly. Really enjoyed the system so far. And then another one via Vassal PBEM. I'm not sure how well this game is going to work for PBEM, as there's a lot of back and forth between players. But we're going to, you know, we'll check it out, see if it works, and uh, know for next time. Um, it's uh, it's always great to uh, play with actual opponents when uh, when it comes to a game that you've only ever soloed. It's uh, it's a great way to find any rules you've missed or strategies you've overlooked. Well, lots of the latter, for sure. Um, and uh, and just, uh, you know, there might be one or two boneheaded things that you just missed and uh, and they wake you up to. So that's great. Okay, well, anyway, that's that. Lo lots of other games still being played as well, but uh, we'll get back talk more about them down the line. New games to the collection. Oh, always, a, always a pleasant thing to talk about, but uh, I have to say I'm very pleased to say that I have neither bought anything new, despite a few trips to the Sentry Box, nor had any surprises show up in the mail uh, this period. Uh, I know the scenario pack for Last Hundred Yards is on its way, but I think that's about it. It's uh, uh, I've managed to uh, 
not burn a hole in my wall at this month, which is uh, probably good news, as I imagine I'll bring something back from the GMT warehouse trip. Books. Do you listen to history podcasts? Uh, I listen to a few, a fair few different history podcasts. And uh, some of the best of the past few years were done by Mike Duncan. His uh, History of Rome podcast is legendary, and then he followed that up with Revolutions, a podcast that took a, a detailed, a really, really detailed look at a bunch of revolutions, starting with the American Revolution and then uh, finishing recently with the Russian Revolution, a bunch in between. Uh, sort of a monumental task, well worth a listen. Anyway, all this uh, great podcasting got him a book deal, and uh, he, he got his first book out, uh, but he's uh, he used all that uh, revolutions research as a starting point for his second book, Lafayette, Hero of Two Worlds. Um, given he'd done a deep dive into both the French and American revolutions, probably a bit of a no-brainer for him. I don't think he's a trained historian, but that might be a plus, as his, his writing is just as fresh and lively as his podcasts. I listened to those a couple years ago, uh, but uh, you know what? What made the book worth reading was its subject. I got to dive back into the American and French revolutions through a, a very particular lens: the life of Lafayette. So it was like going through all that history I'd lately been listening to, but from a totally different angle. Um, if you're interested in either revolution, uh, I recommend the book and uh, and the podcast if uh, you haven't listened to it yet. Uh, Mike Duncan, great stuff. Okay, let's talk about games. The first one, uh, the newer game, is uh, Battle for Kursk, The Daggers of Burning, 1943, designed by Trevor Bender, uh, published, uh, first published in the C3i magazine. This is an operational game set around Operational Citadel in 1943. It's a, it's a sort of a follow-up game to Battle for Moscow, that, uh, a game that also appeared in C3 magazine way back in issue 24. This newer game first appeared in C3i 34, but it's also been given the deluxe box treatment by RBM Studio. Uh, both the uh, the magazine game and the boxed edition use the same components, though the boxed one has a, a couple of non-essential extras. I guess its biggest selling point is that it makes the game still available even after the magazine sells out <laughs> and you get a box. So, uh, you know, that's a plus as well. This is a, this is a one-mapper game. It's uh, paper. Uh, it's, uh, you know, your, your average uh, two by three foot map. It's got about 120 counters in a rule book. Uh, and, that, and that's it. Uh, most of the things you might often find on player aids, such as uh, CRT and the uh, terrain offense chart, etc. They're all found on the map. So uh, everything's right there. The counters are generally uh, cores for the German and armies for the Soviets. Um, unit types are simple. They're, they're basically just either infantry or armor. There's, there's also uh, shock infantry, which just respect, uh, basically represent infantry with a little extra artillery. And then the guards units, which represent tanks and mech infantry uh, mixed together, I think. Um, the counters have the, the standard two number values, combat strength and movement allowance. And then they're also color-coded by uh, unit ID, which has an effect uh, for combat. Uh, there's certain things where you want to keep some unit integrity and you'll get some bonuses. Uh, the map stretches from north of Moscow, I guess Veliki Luki, down to Odessa, uh, north to south, and then from Kiev in the west to Vronezh in the east. It's, I guess it's basically what we're looking at here is Army Group Center and Army Group South, no Army Group North here. 
that uh, that map is uh, it's 28 hexes north, south, and 19 hexes east, west. So you can divide that stretch to find out how many what the actual uh, distance across a hex is. I, I have no idea. Um, the initial setup has basically has each side starting in a line that, that stretches from Veluki uh, Luki in the northwest almost down to the, the farther uh, bottom right corner at uh, Taganrog in the southeast. And uh, Kursk itself is roughly in the center. And it's a, it, the, the game, uh, it, it starts basically with the line intact. Uh, you know, one unit perhaps all along the line of this diagonal line across the map board. Um, the Germans have maybe three units behind the line in reserve, and the Russians have oh may, a dozen or so maybe. So they they start a little more uh, with a little bit more flexibility. The game is a fairly straightforward hex encounters operational game. Uh, it's kind of a, a perfect choice to introduce the curious to old school wargaming, I'd say. Um, but uh, it does have one trick up its sleeve that makes it more than just an introductory game, uh, but I'll, I'll get to that later. Um, <clears throat> movement in this game is pretty straightforward. Each, uh, each unit has a movement allowance, and each terrain or hex side has a movement cost. There, there's a bit of chrome where infantry units, can, infantry units can use rail lines to speed up movement. Um, stacking is only a single unit per hex, though you can move through friendly units, you just can't end on them. Uh, at that single uh, single unit per hex stacking makes this uh, extra friendly for new players as well, I think. Uh, zone Zones of control are simple. You must stop upon entering an enemy zone of control, but it doesn't cost anything to leave one if you start your movement in one. Uh, beware, if you have to retreat and end up in an enemy zone of control, your unit is eliminated. And uh, any unit retreating through an enemy zone of control loses a step. Uh, combat will be fairly familiar to veteran wargamers as well. It's between adjacent hexes. The attacker chooses a target and can attack it from as many units as they have adjacent to the target. Total up all the attacking combat values, divide by the defending combat values, you get a familiar odds ratio. Adjust for defensive terrain, roll the dice, consult the combat results table, and uh, you'll get a result. Uh, if the defender is eliminated or retreats, the attacker can advance into the target hex. Pretty standard stuff. Uh, there's a couple of interesting wrinkles to this, though. Um, the first I find a bit of a pain in the ass, but it's, uh, it's definitely in the rules. And that is that uh, all combats must be announced before any are resolved. Uh, playing live, we definitely skipped this out. as uh, So uh, I guess uh, our results weren't uh, maybe exactly as the designer intended, but... It just seemed easier to do them, uh, to go down the line and do them as uh, one at a time instead of uh, deeming which you know all of them uh, at once. Uh, but the uh, the other uh, the other twist is a little more interesting. When you're attacking with an armor unit or a shock army unit, you can declare an offensive, and then any units in the same corps or army of the lead unit that are not adjacent to the defending unit but are adjacent to the lead attacking unit. They'll cause a uh, they'll cause to shift the attack one column right on the uh, CRT. So if your initial attack is only one to one, but you have two adjacent related units to make it an offensive, you shift from the one to one column over to the three to one column, and you have a much better attack. And uh, to make it even better, these units can also take uh, step losses if needed. 
Um, the only the only uh, hitch to this is each time you conduct a conduct an offensive like this, you have to spend an offensive marker. Marker. Each side starts with a limited amount of these markers, but uh, more are, are awarded on certain turns uh, as per the turn record track. So, uh, uh, yeah, you can you can set up these uh, larger offensives as opposed to just general local attacks up and down the line. Uh, the, the CRT has uh, basically familiar results. Uh, defender eliminated, defender retreat, defender retreat, and a step loss. Exchange, attacker step loss, and no effect. It's, it's all pretty self-explanatory. Um, given it's an east front game, there are some weather effects. Nothing too hard. On uh, three of the game turns, there's mud, which slows down movement and reduces the combat strength of the armor units. But if you don't want to play with the historical weather, there's a, there's a random weather table as well. It still skews towards the historical, but allows for some variation, which is, uh, that's my favorite kind of random chart. Uh, the, the one that isn't totally random, but uh, skews towards the historical, but allows some variability. I like that quite a bit. Okay, I said there's one more twist that makes this a, a really interesting game, and uh, here it is. It's uh, This game has uh, something that's called a posture track. Each turn, each player will have to decide what posture to put his forces in for that turn. You have four four choices. Pause, reposition, deploy, or engage. And the choice you make uh, affects a couple things. The further towards the pause end of the track you pick, the less you can do, but the better uh, the supply of reemplacements you'll receive that turn. Whereas the further towards the engage end of the track you go, the less you receive in terms of replacements, but the more you can do in terms of movement and combat. Um, in terms of replacements, there's, amount, there's an amount given uh, to each side each turn on the turn track, and you can get a little bit more or a little uh, less depending on what your posture is. Uh, as for actions, the, the posture track is clever. Um, each player's turn is divided into phases, and uh, each of the postures lets you participate in only certain phases. For example, if you choose pause, you only get to do the first phase, the replacement phase. Whereas if you choose engage, you get to do all four. You get the replacement phase, the armor and rail movement phase, the combat phase, and then the full movement phase. Uh, reposition posture allows you to do replacement and final movement, while deploy lets you do replacement and both types of movement. So uh, yeah, the, the four postures, very interesting. Uh, it also, uh, you might have noticed uh, in what I just said, it's also interesting to note that regular movement comes after combat. Uh, that's going to take you a little bit to get used to the uh, the first time you play this game if you're uh, if you're a veteran uh, player. The final thing to note about the postures is that it's uh, it's a scale, uh, sort of like a, a one to four scale, and you can generally only move uh, up or down one rung on the scale from turn to turn. Uh, so you you know you can go from um, fr from pause to reinforcement or whatever it's called. Um, uh, you can go from deploy to engagement. So uh, yeah, just one step. If you want to move more than one rung on the scale, it'll cost you an, off an offensive marker. Um, there's also a historical schedule for the postures, which. Uh, uh, I didn't have much use for, but then I thought, well, that might make for a better solo experience because uh, in the normal game, postures are selected secretly and then revealed simultaneously at the start of every turn. But uh, 
If you were soloing this game, you could just use the historical schedule for both sides, and uh, and that would take a, a, a that chunk of uh, the not knowing out of it. Anyway, that's uh, that's the nuts and bolts of how it plays. Um, victories achieved by taking key cities uh, with a small bonus for eliminating more units than your opponent. Uh, there's a few other bits of chrome. Uh, the map gradually uh, expands or uh, changes each side's fortified areas as the turns uh, progress. Um, there's also a, a, an opportunity for each side to set specific objectives, which change the VC just slightly. Um, and uh, and then there's a there's a, sh a shorter scenario as well that starts right into the big fighting. Uh, if you uh, if you want to play uh, a quicker game. Or then there's the longer regular scenario, which basically has uh, kind of four extra early turns at the beginning, uh, while uh, while forces build up sort of before the before the big offensives really start. Uh, I had a really good time playing this opposed over Vassal Live. Um, we were inexperienced players, and uh, I think the game took us uh, between three and four hours, maybe something like that. Um, it's a very close game, plenty of back and forth. Uh, I have to say the posture decisions were often agonizing. Uh, I was constantly wanting to engage, but then not getting enough replacements to keep my line together. It's uh, And that's that's sort of important because it's, uh, it's very much a game about uh, breaking the line. Um, yeah, really enjoyable. I... Uh, the uh, the vassal module uh, straightforward works worked great for live play. I haven't tried it PBEM, uh, so I, I can't comment there. But uh, for vassal live play, it, it was uh, it was perfect. It was great. I uh, I really enjoyed the game. I look forward to the next iteration in C three High Magazine. Um, I think it might be on North Africa. No guarantees. Uh, that just came into my head. Maybe. Uh, anyway, yeah, I really look forward to it. It's, um, I have to say, no, no slight to Mark Herman's fine work, but it's uh, it's going to be refreshing to to not have yet another working of uh, Empire of the Sun as the included game. Uh, it'll be uh, it'll feel a little bit fresh. So um, that's uh, Battle uh, Battle for Curse, The Tigers of Burning, nineteen forty three, available from uh, RBM Studio. Check it out. Time for this episode's older game. Uh, this time we have Hammer the Scots, uh, designed by, well, the, the credits uh, officially say Tom Daglish and Jerry Taylor. I always think of this series of games as Jerry Taylor's games, but uh, uh, maybe with this first one he had a lot of help from Tom Daglish. I don't know. It's uh, anyway published by Columbia Games in 2009. So uh, so this is an oldie, but not, it's not really an oldie. <laughs> it's funny, It's uh, it spawns so many more games, it feels like it should be older. Um, I guess, uh, well, Columbia had been doing block games uh, where only the owner could see what the unit was and how strong it was, depending on what side it was rotated to. The thing with Hammer of the Scots was it um, it added a new twist by also categorizing each unit as A, B, or C in a, a one, two, or three sort of thing. And then uh, it sort, sort of changed how combat works. Uh, more on that later, but it was... Uh, it was definitely something new in the Columbia Block Games universe when it first came out. Uh, Hammer of the Scots takes place in the, 13th, the 1300s. It's uh, about the wars of, uh, for Scottish independence. There's two scenarios, one that runs from 1287 to 1305, another run that's from 1306 to 1314, or you can put them both together for a giant campaign game. 
I've never done that. I've played both of the uh, played both of the scenarios. Neither they're they're sort of equal in size. Neither one is a big one and a little one. They're both sort of uh, mid size, but I, I've never run them together for the giant thing. The map is of Scotland with just the uh, top of England along the southern edge. Um, in terms of components, it's not exactly a paper map. It's a, it's kind of a heavy cardboard map, but it's it's not as thick as a mounted map. Uh, it's an area movement map divided into uh, 23 areas. It's a block game. Nice Columbia blocks. They always have great blocks. With the Scots taking the blue blocks and the English the red. Uh, the blocks are either leaders, such as uh, Edward I or William Wallace, or nobles, or troops. Uh, each block will have a sticker on one flat side indicating what it is, along with a series of pips along two to, f two to four of the edges, uh, which sort of tells you uh, what the strength is. You, you stand each block up facing you with a number of pips on the top edge indicating what the current strength of the unit is. And of course, your opponent will only see the blank backside. Uh, when, a, when a block takes hits, you simply turn them to show a lower amount of pips uh, on the top side until they're eliminated. Uh, each of the nobles has a home area on the map. That's where, that's where they'll, they'll, they uh, start and where, they, where, where they'll start each, uh, each new year as well. They also get a, a small bonus of one extra die if they're defending in their home area. That's worth remembering. Each area also has what's called a castle limit. Um, this is a, a limit as to how many units can stay in that area between turns, or uh, what's called wintering uh, in the game, as well as how many strength points can be built there uh, each uh, each winter. There's also cards in the game. Uh, it's, it's, uh, they're not particularly attractive, but they're totally functional. If you if you play at other Columbia games, uh, you'll know exactly what to expect here. Um, yeah, they're they're not like regular playing cards at all. They look like the old kind of cards you might get in a in a Parker Brothers game or something back when you were a kid. Uh, victory in the game is determined by who controls the most nobles at the end. Now that might seem a little weird, but the deal is the number of nobles fluctuates because they switch sides whenever they're defeated in combat. So uh, so that's how it can uh, that's how that's how the the number fluctuates. So. That's, uh, that's basically what it looks like, so how does it work? At the start of a turn, each player is dealt five cards. The cards are mostly movement cards, numbered one to three, but there's also a few event cards sprinkled in. Uh, each turn is a year. Both players will play all five of their cards each year. After drawing their five-card hand, each player selects a card, plays it face down, and then they reveal them simultaneously. If either player plays an event, the event is resolved immediately. Uh, if they both play events, both are resolved immediately, and then the year immediately ends with no further card play. But usually, um, both will probably play a numbered movement card, and whoever played the higher number moves first, with ties making the English player go first. The number on the movement cards indicates how many groups of units you can activate that round. Uh, each group, uh, each block, can uh, move either two or three areas, depending on the type of unit they are. Uh, they have to stop when entering an enemy-occupied area or when crossing certain colored border lines. As well, uh, only six blocks may cross a green border and only two blocks can cross a red border line. 
So uh, if the Scots player had played a, a three card and the English player had played a one card, the Scots player would go first. They would select three areas to move units from, make, and then they'd make their moves. And then the English player would select their one area to move from and, and uh, make their moves. Note that if the first player moves some of their units into an area that has an enemy unit or units in it, it's going to pin an equal number of those enemy units to that zone and keep them from moving out. It's, uh, yeah, it's not easy to run away in this game. After each player has made their moves, combat occurs in all contested spaces. Uh, combat in each area lasts a maximum of three rounds, and uh, if it isn't decisive by then, the attacker must retreat. If an area is being attacked by more than one force coming over different borders due to the, uh, the border limits, one of the groups has to be declared the, uh, the lead attack group, and then any other groups that come over, they'll be added to that contested area in reserve, and they, they won't take part in the first round of battle. They can only take part in the second and third round of uh, battle. Same thing goes for any groups the defender might bring in on their move if they, they reinforce that uh, contested area. As I noted earlier, uh, all units are rated A, B, or C. Uh, this is important in battle because the A's strike before B's, which strike before C's, and the defender always strikes before the attacker, but uh, within the uh, the ranks. So defender's A's go first, then attacker's A's, then defender's B's, attacker's B's, so on. Uh, combat isn't simultaneous, so uh, whatever hits you take before your turn to roll with certain units will degrade that unit's combat strength. Uh, units are also rated numerically, and this uh, this basically tells you what numbers they will hit with. So uh, an A3 unit will hit on 1s, 2s, and 3s. A B2 unit would only hit on 1s and 2s. Uh, a C4 unit, if there is such a thing, would, would strike last, but it would hit on 1s, 2s, 3s, and 4s. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, finally, the, the current strength of the unit, the, the, uh, the number of pips on its uppermost side, that determines how many dice that unit gets to attack with. So um, this sets up some interesting choices in battle. When your opponent scores hits on you, you have to apply it to the unit with the most pips. But if the unit with if you have more than one unit tied for the with the most pips, you get to decide. So so do you take the hit on a crappy unit, but this has yet to uh, have its turn to uh, uh, strike in combat yet? Or is it better off to take the hit on a unit that's already ba battled, even if it was a better unit? Because that'll at least leave you with an extra die to use when you finally get to use your crappy unit. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's not ground-shaking stuff, but it's, uh, it's fun and interesting decisions. After the first round of combat, any extra units from reserve that also moved into the contested area now also join the battle. And you do a second round and then a third round of combat... Um, and as I said earlier, if the attacker doesn't hasn't won after three rounds, then the attacker has to retreat. But uh, retreating is always possible instead of participating. Uh, but interestingly, it's done on a unit-by-unit unit basis at the time each unit is eligible for combat. So you can't, uh, you can't uh, retreat your Cs before the other person has fired their As or their Bs. Um, and also note that uh, those, uh, those border limits are still in place, so uh, it might not be possible to easily retreat a large force all at once anyway. During the battle, any nobles that are eliminated immediately switch sides and go to the other player as a, a one-strength unit in reserve. Uh, 
if, uh, if there's still uh, rounds left in the battle, they'll, uh, they'll become active uh, in the next round. Any troops blocks eliminated go back to the owner's uh, draw pool, and uh, perhaps they'll come back later in the game. Uh, the English king blocks, Edward I and II, have a few special rules as how they... Uh, uh, well, if I think it's Edward I, if you kill Edward I, I think the game's over. Uh, but Edward II might have a different rule. Um, and there's there's special rules for the Scottish leader blocks as well, uh, for the Bruce and for William Wallace. And there's there's actually even an English, or sorry, a Scottish king block. And the same thing happens. If that block comes into play and is eliminated, the Scots automatically lose, I think, too. Anyway, there's, there's a few special rules for all these leader blocks. All of it, uh, all of it a bit chromy, but all of it fun. After, uh, after all the battles are resolved, both players play their next card and the whole thing happens again and so on until uh, both players have played uh, all five of their cards. Uh, then it's uh, end of the year and uh, time for wintering. There's, uh, there's more fun here as uh, in the winter, uh, all the nobles have to go back to their home area. Uh, if you still own that area, that's uh, good. But if a noble's home area is now controlled by their opponent, the noble instantly switches side and keeps his current strength. So uh, this happens uh, fairly often in the game, at least in uh, maybe we're maybe we're just not good players. But uh, you, uh, you you take uh, take an area for uh, for your opponent's uh, noble and then manage to get a decent noble uh, as an extra when the when the wintering happens. Um, any blocks, uh, any blocks still in England must disband and go back to the draw pool. So it's uh, incumbent on the English player to make sure that he moves all of his units uh, at some point out of England and into Scotland, uh, as well as uh, any English archers, knights, or uh, hobelars that aren't stacked with the king. Um, they they have to uh, disband as well. If they are stacked with the king, they can winter with the king. Well, I should say, uh, Edward I may winter in Scotland, but not two years in a row. Uh, so, uh, he either you, you have, if you're playing the English, you have to declare whether he's going to winter in Scotland or not. Um, the Scots can hold on to all their units, subject to castle limits for each area, as we discussed earlier. And then each side gets to re replenish a few pips in each area it controls, again, subject to the castle limits. The Scots player can either rebuild a strength point on a unit in an area or draw a unit from their uh, pool and deploy it with a strength of one into that area. The English can only use the castle limit points to increase the strength of on-map units. To bring their units back from their draw pool, they get uh, what they call a, uh, a, the English levy every turn. They get to randomly draw half the units from their draw pool. Uh, but only in terms where Edward is not wintering in Scotland. So if he stays in Scotland, uh, the English forego their levy that term. Um, these uh, these freshly levied units always start in England. And uh, and then that, that's the end of the turn. The, the year marker is advanced. Each player draws five new cards, and uh, we do it all again. At the end of the game, whoever has the most nobles wins. Or, you know, there's a sudden death if the English king is ever captured, or, or if one side uh, ends up with all the nobles, that's a, that's a sudden death victory as well. Um, this was the first game of its kind, and it spawned several more along the same lines. There's uh, Richard III, Julius Caesar, and Crusader Rex. 
Um, I think uh, probably Julius Caesar is maybe the best of the games. Uh, uh, Richard III I don't have, so I... But just going by what I've read, uh, Julius, Caesar, Julius Caesar game might be the best of these. Uh, it's certainly the most elegant production-wise, but i got to say, I still have a kind of a soft spot for Hammer of the Cots. I like the loud colors on the blocks. Um, I, I, I get that the bottom of the map has a few choke points that constrain maneuver and, and dictate uh, play and movement to a certain extent, but uh, i got to say, it's still damn fun. There's plenty of randomness with the buckets of dice approach to battle. There's uh, there's lots of fog of war due to the one uh, due to the one-sided blocks. Um, it it adds up to a game that's way more game than simulation, but it's a really fun game. Uh, I don't know. Perhaps if I'd played it 50 times instead of a uh, half dozen or so, I'd be tired of the map. Hard to know. But in the times I've played it, each play has felt different enough for me to want to come back and and play it again, and and to play uh, other games in the series. So definitely this game led me to the others. Um, I've played this game using the Vas Vassal module, PBEM. It's, uh, it's a bit dated. I think this module hasn't been updated since uh, 2016, but it was uh, it's still totally functional. Um, just, just don't expect much in the way of automation. But uh, yeah, I recommend you, if you haven't ever checked it out, give Hammer the Scots a try from uh, Columbia Games. All right, time for uh, bouquets and brickbats. <laughs> First, uh, well, let me start with an update to last episode's brickbat. No, IKEA has not got the shelves in yet. So uh, my games are still in these giant stacks, definitely not doing their boxes any good. Well, I, uh, I sit here and wait. I've checked out tons of other possibilities, but I haven't found anything as flexible for as good a price as uh, what I'm trying to buy from IKEA. So, uh, so I wait. Come on, Ikea! That said, for my bouquet this episode, I wanted to give a shout-out to uh, all my PBM partners scattered all around the world. I've, I've played uh, folks from uh, all kinds of different continents and countries around the world. But uh, I'll, I'll highlight one in particular, as I, I think I've played as many games against him as, as almost anyone via PBM. It's uh, my regular opponent, uh, Dave Blizzard. Our, our current total is... Uh, 87 matches and climbing, all of them by PBEM. Uh, well, I think we, we might have played a, a few things on uh, on Rally the Troops or uh, Yakata or some some of those things. But anyway, they're all they're all remote uh, as asynchronous plays. Um, I knew Dave's son before I met him, as we were both working on some of the same shows together, and I'd acted with his son's wife in uh, in a play or two back in the day, but. Uh, then I, I joined a group playing an online version of the old uh, 3M Avalon Hill game Speed Circuit, and uh, that's where I, I first met Dave. We were racing against each other. Uh, through that, we managed to figure out we had a couple of common friends. I think maybe Dave recognized my name from a program of something he'd seen uh, with, uh, with his kid or, uh, his, uh, or, or his uh, daughter-in-law. I'm not sure. Anyway, we, uh, we we got in contact and started playing other games online. Um, we've played a we played a ton of uh, commands and colors ancients. Uh, he's beat me mercilessly at Rommel at the Desert. Um, we've also played Imperial Struggle, um, uh, Shores of Tripoli, Pax Porphyriana. Uh, there's probably others. Um, According to my records, he's won 52% of those games, so uh, I feel like we're a pretty uh, well-matched pair. Uh, 
Uh, he's always up for something new and ready to move on if a game doesn't keep his interest. Uh, I know he plays a wide variety of non-war games as well. He was a he's a big part of the local gaming scene here in Calgary before I ever met him, and uh, and he moved out west. Um, like many Grandyards, he's uh, he's starting to get up there in age and has had his uh, fair share of health scares, uh, but he keeps on ticking. So um, hats off to Dave and uh, to all the friends I've made playing via Vassal and uh, online over the years. It's uh, really opened up my uh, wargaming horizons for sure. Barting shots. Um, I was uh, I was listening to a podcast about war games the other day, and the host said he didn't really like competitive games. He preferred co-op games. He was decrying the lack of co-op games in uh, the war game hobby. Yeah, I'm not a co-op player at all. It's uh, it's not, it's not that I'm competitive. Not at all. It's uh, I'm, I'm usually I'm happy just to play and see how the thing turns out. But I like to try to win at least, uh, and I and I really like to to try match wits with my opponent. Um, the reason I don't generally like solo games is because I don't I don't feel the same wit matching when playing against an AI, and I don't find that AIs generally make the same blunders that me and my live opponents make. Anyway, um, you know that's sort of why I don't like uh, co-op games as well, I suppose. Anyway, I I just uh, I found it sort of strange that a war game player would be looking only to play cooperatively. That was. Uh, a unique perspective to me. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Is uh, is co-op war games going to be the new thing? I, the icing on the cake was uh, when the host said that he felt uncomfortable. The reason he didn't like uh, comp- competitive games was because he was uncomfortable when he was winning in a blowout, and he felt sorry for the losing player, that he couldn't see how the losing player had much fun. Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, well, his panelists uh, tried to persuade him that you can have fun even while losing, but the uh, the host just wouldn't budge on the topic. I think what no one really brought up in that conversation was the fact that, at least in my experience, games aren't generally blowouts. Um, one side winning in a route doesn't happen all that often. I, I know we've all been on, on both sides of the equation often enough to be familiar with it, but for me, I, it's just not a big enough thing to worry about. Uh, I'm not trying to say we don't need more co-op war games or that I'm against uh, co-op war games. Uh, my, it's like all the other games. If, if folks want them, I hope they get them. There's, there's plenty of room for all. There's, there's plenty of room for all the games that I like. And if they make more of the type that you like, it doesn't take away any of that, that I like. Uh, I guess I just bring it up because I found the, the reasoning strange, but I wondered if it was just me. Uh, something I wonder more and more the older I get. I don't know. Maybe more and more players are feeling like they don't want to compete against another human player. I mean, I'm all, I'm all for participation medals, uh, but for me, uh, a game is between people, not with people. If you want to do something cooperatively with me, um, come help me build a new fence. Anyway, uh, what do you think? Drop by the website, vote in a poll, leave a comment, uh, uh, register, have your say in our forums, however you like. Uh, you can uh, hit me up at pushingcardboard.com or at Cardboard Pusher on Twitter. Uh, we also have a Discord server. Uh, you can probably find a link to that on our website or probably through the Discord search. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I'm Grant Lindeberg. If you enjoyed it, tell a friend. If you didn't, tell your mom. And uh, talk to you next time.